Well, my name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. I know that on this beautiful, uh, almost spring day, there are lots of things you could be doing. And well, I'm thankful you guys would join us here this morning. I do want to go ahead and make a note uh, about giving. Uh, this is typically where we take up our tithes and offerings, but uh, if you feel led to give, uh, you are able to do so either online at homesavenue.com forward slash give, or you can give to our deacons who will be standing at the rear as you exit. Uh, you're welcome to give in either way that God may lead you to do so. Now, uh, as we begin, uh, you guys uh, have probably gotten a glimpse of the title already, uh, specifically that we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 12, and I've titled this The Sanctity of Life. Now, I recognize uh, as we are getting into this passage that there's already probably some questions and some thoughts you have going through as you hear that uh, very basic title right off the bat. I do want to kind of give some clarification as we look at this passage that uh, this is a passage about childbirth. And this is God talking through what the Israelites are to do in the midst of childbirth. So I want to make sure that we're all clear that as we're addressing this, there are some details that I'm going to have to go into, and I'll be as delicate as possible within the realms of this, but I want us to recognize the reality that there are some things we're going to have to address and cover in a very adult way here. And so with that in mind, I want you to know there may be some clarifying conversations that you'll need after this, uh, particularly if you're first beginning to wrestle with what's happening here, but I want you to know what we're going into as we're getting started. Now, you'll understand why I said that uh, as we look at the passage here. And uh, as we're looking here in uh, chapter 12 of Leviticus, verses 1 through 8, uh, this is brief enough, as you know, we've been going through the book of Leviticus, that we can actually together stand and read God's Word today. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Leviticus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation, and she shall continue in her, the blood of her purifying for 66 days. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he, the priest, shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she can take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. Uh, If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. Father, as we study the scriptures that you've laid out this, this Levitical command. There is much that goes into this, much that we're wrestling with, Father. And I, I simply pray today that your presence would be made known, that we would clearly hear you speak the truth of the Scriptures through me, Father. That I would not say anything that would uh, bring glory or dishonor to you in, in, in a negative way. But Lord, that people could see clearly the goodness of God They could see the character that you're displaying here for us, the love and affection you have for your children. 
Lord, I pray that those things would be made clear as we wrestle with this, this idea of childbirth and life and this beautiful mystery you've given us. So, Father, I pray that we would exalt you, that we would make much of your name. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. Now, as we have begun looking at this, um, I joke this week that Brian always lets me have the interesting passages. Uh, just a few short months ago in First Peter, I had First uh, Peter 3 talking about wives submitting to your husbands. That was fun. And now I have this lovely passage. Now, frankly, uh, as we come to this, this is the very Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and inspired by Him. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, etc. And as I begin to look at this, I begin to ask this question of, well, God, what is it that you're doing here? What is it that you're showing us? Uh, so much of what we've seen in Leviticus, particularly as we've gone through uh, some of these Levitical laws and, and commands and these rituals they've established, we, we don't follow those types of worship anymore. Remember, much of the Levitical code is about how the people of God are to worship, right? And in this day, in the new covenant we have through Jesus Christ, paying for the debt of our sin, that we worship in a different way. And so as I looked at this passage, I began to wrestle with, well, certainly God is not commanding us to worship in this particular way at this time. We're in the new covenant, that this command is no longer applicable. But what is it that he's getting to? What is the point of what God is trying to show us here? And as I wrestled with that, I really landed on what I think is the summation of the entire passage. And that is that God is concerned about human life. God is concerned about the lives of his creations. You know, that's why I've titled this The Sanctity of Life. And the truth of it is, as we study the scriptures, we recognize that God is deeply concerned about the lives of his people and those he's created. Now, as we look at this passage, I think there are some parallels throughout Scripture that we can draw forth and see what God desires for life, what he desires for his people, what he desires for all of creation, in fact. The first point that I want us to wrestle with is that God desires life. God desires life. You see, we wrestle with this idea of life and what is it that God wants in this world. But as we look throughout the scriptures, right, as we study the width and breadth of the Bible, we recognize that the very message of our faith, the gospel of Jesus, is one of life. That our God is a creator, that he is a sustainer, that he is one who is deeply involved in every intimate move of our lives. That it has been said by some theologians that if God were to withdraw himself from creation for even a millisecond, that all would cease and end. And the fundamental nature of what we see within creation, with what we see in Scripture, is that God desires life. Now, as we look at this, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air, right? We see that just the very message of the gospel displays that. We see that God takes those who were dead and their trespasses and sin and makes them live. That is, you and I, who were lost in sin and shame, who were in active rebellion against God, we were dead. We were as far from him as we could be. We were in the grave. The tombstone was there. We were gone. And God, in his rich love and mercy, reached down and pulled us out of the grave. That he brought life to us. 
We see that Jesus, who goes and dies upon the cross, is raised from the dead. That the very core of the gospel message is that God himself has power over life and death. That he would send Jesus to die upon the cross for our sin, but he was not content to leave him in the grave, but he resurrected him. He brought him back to demonstrate his power and authority over life and death. We even see that the scriptures promise a bodily resurrection for us. That yes, we recognize that when we pass from this world, we go forth and we are immediately before God, that we draw one breath here and the next we're before God Almighty. That we are there, we are worshiping him, we are dwelling with him for all eternity. But if we get to the end of the Bible and we look at the book of Revelation, we see that God promises in a new heavens and a new earth, when sin is defeated, when Satan is no more, when all has been made right and creation is restored, that he promises a bodily resurrection of his saints. That he says, you live spiritually and you will live again physically. You see, our God is a God of life. And as we look at this, as we study this passage, I would submit to you that I believe the scriptures make it clear that uh, this process of bringing life into the world, this process of childbirth, is one that is worthy of celebration. You see, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 reads, uh, if I paraphrase a chunk of it, God blessed them, speaking to Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We'll just stop right there. God is speaking to Adam and Eve and he's created them. And he says, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And frankly, if we're being honest, this is perhaps the only command that God has given humanity that we've consistently obeyed, right? That right now, just purely just looking from a scientific perspective, the current estimates this year is that the human population is going to cross 7.9 billion people on this earth this year. 7.9 billion that we have indeed been faithful to this command, be fruitful and multiply. You see, childbirth is a direct result of applying God's commands here. And I recognize we're appealing to the very character of God, right? We're trusting that he is a holy, perfect, righteous God who would not lead us into sin. And so that would display to us that childbearing is good, that life coming through this process is good and honoring to him. We see throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Psalms, that the psalmist writes about children and how they're a blessing. Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5 read, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. You see right here, this psalmist, as he's writing, would tell us that children are considered to be a heritage from the Lord. That a family that has children is considered to be abundantly blessed. There's an extra measure of blessing upon them. Now, you might ask, where are we going with this? What's the point of this? Perhaps I'm appealing to a biblical foundation you already have. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build out a framework to tackle some of the questions that we have to answer as we look at this. As we wrestle with God's valuing of life, we have to build this framework to understand that God desires life, he values it, that we honor him through this process of life. 
Now, as we look at this, we see that God is clear, that God, that he wants life, that it's good. And we're going to have to tackle some questions within this as we think about life and what this means. Uh, frankly, this is one that uh, I really wrestled with, you know, do we need to even talk about this? But as we jump in, you know, one thing that I felt necessary to talk about as we're looking at this is the matter of abortion. I don't want to speak casually or, or just uh, flippantly regarding this, but one of the realities is this, is, is that I found it impossible to address childbearing and life without stepping into this discussion. Very briefly, this is not a sermon regarding this topic. I want to be very clear about that. This is an implication. Hey, we've got to talk about this. And if you want to have further conversation, then let's you and I speak after the service. I just want to be clear that, hey, we have to address that because we're talking about childbearing and life. Now, to put it simply, as we wrestle with this idea of, of abortion, abortion is not honoring to God's desires for life. That it runs directly contrary to the very will of God. You see, we, we believe in agreement with science that life begins at conception, that God uh, intimately knew us before we were even known in our mother's womb, that he created us, that he intended for us to have life to bring honor to him. And we would submit to you that as we wrestle with abortion and, and all the things that come of this, that at any time in the pregnancy, abortion is specifically the calculated killing or murder of an innocent life. That to be very frank, there is no other way to describe it that an innocent life is being taken. Now, as we wrestle with that, we've got to understand that that is against the very nature of what God desires. God desires that this process of a man and a woman coming together, this process of childbearing, to be one that brings life and joy and happiness into the midst of people's lives. I also want to be very clear because we in the church have a, a, a really difficult relationship with this topic of abortion. You see, I want to be very clear that should you have pursued this, should this be a part of your story, this is not an unforgivable sin. That This is something that God in his riches and mercy can very much forgive. You see, we in the church have this tendency to take things like this and make it an ultimate end-all, be-all, that if you've done this, you are not worthy of the grace of God. And let me tell you something, that is a lie that brings joy to Satan himself. The truth of it is, is there is no sin that can separate you from God himself. In fact, the only sin that I would suggest that cannot be forgiven is the one that you've not confessed and repented of before the Lord. As we study scripture, we see that there's this idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what is that? That is a rejection of the gospel of God that he has come to reconcile his creation to the creator. That very simply, as we look at this, I don't want to make light of this subject. I don't want to stand on this for a significant amount of time because it's not the point of this sermon. But what I want to acknowledge is that God's mercy and grace are without limits. That even should an abortion be a part of your story, God is still present and active and waiting with open arms to receive you. Now, I want to be clear that we're not here to stand on this topic and preach against that. There's certainly I would advocate against that as a believer. But 
we had to address the elephant in the room, right? That if we're talking about life and childbirth, we had to articulate a conversation about this. Now, to that end, there's some other things that I think within the process of childbirth, knowing that God desires life, that we have questions about, right? Specifically, this set of questions I think we would wrestle with would be the idea, what we see in our world of miscarriages. That as we wrestle with this, I want to speak very lightly because I recognize this is a a pain that I'm addressing that many people have experienced. Uh, Perhaps you're here and and you have not experienced uh, this difficulty and this heartbreak, but just a surprising statistic perhaps for you that one out of four women have experienced miscarriages. That even if you have not experienced this, I know that you're like me and you're asking the question, why? That if God desires life, if God desires childbirth to bring joy and happiness and satisfaction, why would something like miscarriages happen? Why would we see this horrible thing occur This thing that was supposed to bring life and joy instead turned to tragedy. Well, again, I would submit to you that God is a God of life. That he's a God who desires for life to occur and to prosper and to grow and thrive in him. Yet we have to recognize that the world is not quite the way it's supposed to be. Just as we're talking about this reality of miscarriages, we can recognize that This perhaps isn't the way God intended for childbirth to function. As we look back to Genesis and go back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible, we see that God created Adam and Eve, humanity, to prosper with him. That yes, there was work, yes, there was labor, yes, there was difficulty, but things were supposed to be good and perfect. And then we see that sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. We see that sin, as it takes place, as it roots its way into man's heart, brings consequences. You see, before that moment where Adam and Eve began to sin and lead us down this road that has left us to where we are today, many theologians would suggest that before sin entered the world, humanity would not know the pain of death. That we were intended to live forever in the presence of the Lord, walking in His midst with a perfect, holy relationship with Him. We look at the Scriptures and we recognize that it has much to say about sin and about death. One that's perhaps most commonly put out there is Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The reality of it is that when sin entered the world, at the fall, death came behind it like a pale shadow. They're linked together. And this is not to say that when miscarriages and these terrible things happen, that that is a result of your sin. By no means am I saying that. What I am saying is that is just a result of the broken, fallen nature of our world. That you and I can look around the world and we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. When you look at things like earthquakes, when you look at the things of tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes, I mean, just a few weeks ago, there was snow in the middle of Texas. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not working properly. We look at our own lives. We recognize that sometimes that we get sick and we die. 
that our own body develops cancer and attacks itself. You cannot convince me that these things are the way God intended for them to be because they're not. These are a direct result of sin entering into the world. And because of sin entering into the world, we are now dealing with the consequences of that. Our world is broken by sin, and it doesn't work the way it's supposed to be. Yet, into this brokenness, God speaks life. Into this brokenness, God injected himself into the middle of the story. Even when we look at Genesis, as the fall occurs, and we see that these these punishments, these consequences are being laid out for Adam and Eve and all of humanity, God gives us the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel. And he says, speaking to his son Jesus who had come, and he says, though he will wound his heel, he will crush his head. You see, he points to this truth that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, even in the middle of darkness, even in the middle of sin and despair, even in the midst of turmoil and strife, God is not silent. He is living and active and moving. That in the midst of history, God sent himself, his son Jesus, to walk this earth to live a perfect and holy life that you and I could not live. And that he went to the cross to die a death in our place so that we would take his place. That is, that we would be co-heirs with him. That we would be beloved children of the Lord. That when God looks upon us as followers of Jesus Christ, he does not see sinners who are in need of a savior. He sees the righteousness of Christ dwelling upon us. You see, in the midst of this difficult, broken world, God still desires life. God desires life so much that he would send his son to die to pay for our lives. And so I would submit to you as we wrestle with these these questions and these topics that God desires for life to prosper. Now, as we've looked at this, we recognize that God desires life. We recognize that God desires certain outcomes in our lives. That takes us to our second point, that God desires holiness. God desires holiness in our lives. Now, specifically, what does that have to do with this entire section of scriptures we've been looking at, right? Uh, Leviticus 12, 1 through 8. What does that have to do with anything that's being said here? Well, a natural question that would come up for us as we look at this passage, we see that he has some certain stipulations that women after childbirth are supposed to abide behind. And we see that and we go, well, does he treat them differently than men? Does he not value women as much as men? Does he love them less than men? And I think that we would answer those questions with a resounding no. That to women he has given the honor of pursuing this process of bringing glory to him through faithful love and service and ministry together with their husbands. That women are, in fact, in a unique position in the creation because they are the ones who give life. 
It could perhaps be said that they are more closely echoing the creative work of God because they give and provide life. I want you to hear very clearly that as God establishes these rules, he's concerned about our holiness. This is the purity section of the scriptures in Leviticus. But he in no way devalues or thinks of women as lesser in any way, shape, or form. But as we look at this, we have to wrestle with some questions we have. We look at this and we see words like unclean and, and we, we immediately take a negative connotation to that, right? That we talk about things being unclean, we immediately go, well, unclean things are bad. We can't associate with them. Uh, when we look at unclean, we often think of that's something that's, that's a sin. That's something that's morally wrong. And as we wrestle with those thoughts, we go, is God saying this about women? While those are some true meanings and applications of the word, we have to wrestle with what Scripture is actually saying, right? The best way to interpret Scripture is with Scripture. And as we look at this usage of unclean, particularly throughout the Levitical law, unclean within the confines of the Scriptures is most commonly talking about a ritual impurity. Not sin, not anything that is a moral offense, but a ritual impurity. You see, God's not associating childbirth with sin at all. Rather, he's addressing the issue of blood within childbirth. You know, I've said there are some topics that I'm going to have to kind of tread delicately over, and this is one of them right now as we talk about childbirth. Uh, I have not delivered a child, as you have perhaps surmised, just to let you in on that, I have not. I have been present when my wife has delivered both children. Uh, you have perhaps been present when your spouse delivered, gentlemen. Uh, perhaps you've been around this. Perhaps you've taken a basic anatomy course and you know there's something that happens here, right? Within that, uh, there are many bodily fluids that are involved in the process of childbirth. And I'm trying to speak very lightly here. Blood is among them. Now, why is this important? Why is this relevant as we're looking at this passage of Scripture? Why are we wrestling with this? Well, as we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus, blood is associated with death. Blood is directly associated with death. And it's this association with death that God is referring to as he's addressing this idea of being considered unclean. And you're probably asking at this point, right, what's the big deal, right? It's a little bit of blood, but this is just how the world works, right? Like, what's the big deal about this? It's just blood. It's not a big issue. Well, yeah, in one sense, you are correct that it's just blood, right? But in a deeper sense, God is concerned about the holiness of his people, and specifically, he's striving to create a holy people. He tells them multiple times in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy, this holiness is intended to be a mark, a clear line in the sand from the people around the Israelites. That they are supposed to be clearly distinct from the world around them. Now, if you've studied a little bit of biblical history, you'll actually perhaps begin to see why this is such a big deal. So we'll play a little Bible trivia right now, right? Have you guys ever heard of the Canaanites? Yeah, a few of you, that's good. If you've read about the promised land, uh, the, the land that God has said, this is your land, the Canaanites are the people who inhabited this land. Now, what do we know about the Canaanites? Well, 
we don't know a, a ton, but we do have some archaeological evidence about just who they were and the things they did, and particularly about how they worshipped. To be quite frank, uh, what we know about how they worship would display to us that they were essentially evil people who worship false gods who lived in the exact opposite way that God intended. In fact, their God, this lowercase g that they worship, this false idol they worship, his name is Baal. And one of their methods of worship involved their priests cutting themselves to make an offering before the Lord. And so to make an offering, we see this displayed in 1 King. They would go and cut their wrists and their forearms and spread this blood over the altar to make an offering to Baal. Some of their worship practices even included child sacrifice. Now, there's another people that's surrounding the people of Israel at this point. Maybe you've heard of the Moabites. If you're a student of scriptures, maybe you've seen this. The Moabites worshipped another false god, a lowercase g again, named Moloch. And Moloch is a god very similar to Baal. And their worship practices were actually still quite similar, that it involved the blood of the priests and human sacrifice. In fact, we, what we understand about the Moabites is they were one of the bloodiest people who lived in the Mediterranean region. Now, I bring this up not to... Uh, be rather morbid or, or to be grim with you, but we need to understand some of the cultures that are surrounding the people of God at this time. Most of them worship their false gods in a very similar way. Uh, their worship practices were pretty similar to one another. Yet in the midst of all of this darkness, there's a light on the hill, the nation of Israel. You see, we have these people, this holy people that God has established, who do not practice human sacrifice. In fact, they believe that human life is sacred. In fact, we see that we as Christians, who are direct descendants of this holy people, have that same belief. In the early Roman Empire, we see that Christians were known as these people who would adopt orphans and widows off the streets. That one emperor even remarked that there is no one left to care for because the Christians are caring for them all. That the very nature of who we are as people of God is defined by knowing that life is sacred. Now maybe you can see perhaps where we're going with this. You see, God wanted his people to be so distinct from the world around them that he would ask his people to pursue ritual purity to ensure that there was no confusion about what or who they worshipped. You see, God, as he's addressing the purity policies he gives from roughly 12 through 15 in, in chapters of Leviticus, he wants to be very clear of who they're worshiping and what the God they worship stands for. Now, we, we're not getting into this today, but we'll see throughout the rest of the purity section is that God doesn't limit this to just women, right? He, he puts this out upon all his people that you must behave and abide in this certain way. We actually see in chapters 13 through 15, he spends all three of those chapters talking about leprosy. Not something that you and I wrestle with or deal with very much today, but he's addressing this idea of leprosy. And in this, as he's addressing leprosy, both men and women 
are commanded to pursue ritual cleansing over this condition. Why? To display their purity before the world. You see, what I would submit to you is that God is desiring for us, as we look at this passage, as we look at the themes of Scripture, is He's calling us to be holy people. A people that is separated, that is called out from the world. That though we are in the world, we are not of the world. That He's calling for us to be a distinct light on a hill in a dark and dying world. And so as we wrestle with this topic, if indeed we believe that God values and honors life, we have to recognize that God desires for holiness to be one of the manifestations of life. God desires for holiness to be a central part of our lives. And there's one final thing that I believe that God desires for us as we look at this passage and look at the themes of Scripture, that God desires sanctification. God desires sanctification. Specifically, as we get into the end of this time, we see that in the end of Leviticus chapter 12, that there are some commands that he gives the woman to go forth and make some ritual offerings. That she's to go forth and to bring, uh, we specifically see a young lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove. That if she can't afford those, she's to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. That we see that there are certain offerings she's to go forth and make. That it even uses the word atonement here to reference that this is what is being done. Atonement, atoning work is being provided as she goes forth and makes these offerings. Now, again, as we've referenced here, this work of atoning is not referring to sin, but it's referring to the uncleanliness that we've looked at earlier. God is making it very clear to the people around him that if you are unclean, there is only one person, there is only one God that can make you clean, and that is me. That the nations around them would see that there is only one way to be made clean, to be made holy, and that's through the Lord God Almighty. Now, even as we wrestle with this and we've recognized that childbirth does not bring any type of sin upon a woman, that this is not a sinful act, it does serve as a reminder of our sin and our enduring need for a Savior. You see, as we look at Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve sin against God. And one of the consequences of sin is Genesis 3.16. And we're not going to put it on the screen, but let me paraphrase it for you. Uh, He promises that there will be turmoil and distress in the woman's life because of her role in this. He says that one consequence will be that you will desire the place of your husband. That is, you will want to be in charge. You'll want to subvert the natural plan that he's provided for men to lead and to shepherd and to care for their wives. You'll want to turn that on the head, and you'll want to be in charge. you want to be the leader. He also says that childbirth, labor, will be hard. I don't think that it's a uh, false thing to say that for any of our ladies who have gone through this, um, calling it hard is an understatement. To describe childbirth and labor as simply being difficult doesn't quite capture the full measure of what occurs there. You see, the pain and blood of childbirth serve as reminders of the original sin. 
You see, this ensures that you and I can never forget that there is a weight of sin upon us. You know, I'm reminded of this as you go see children and families after they've had a, a child. And it's an incredible moment, right? It's a lot of fun. You get to go see these new parents and see their children. And you get to rejoice with them. And the question that always comes up as you go to these things and go see their child for the first time, they always ask, aren't they beautiful? And every time the answer is, yep, they sure are, when the truth is that they are red, they're wrinkled, they're bald, and their head shaped like a football. Babies look like aliens, just in case you're wondering. Kelly and I can joke about it on this side of things because our kids are beautiful, but we go, man, they were kind of weird looking when they were born. That's normal. In the midst of that, no matter how beautiful this baby is, we recognize something that they are still sinful creatures who are in need of a redeeming Savior. One of the things I've found about raising Perry and Molly is that I've not had to teach them anything about selfishness. I've not had to teach them a single thing about possessiveness. I've not to have to explain anything at all about looking out for yourself. Why? Because it's a very part of who we are because of our sin. You see, children are the most sinful creatures you'll ever encounter because you don't have to teach them any of it. They come out the womb equipped and ready to perform these tasks. You see, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 tells us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and, and this portion is relevant particularly, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see, we don't have to be trained in sin because we're born fully capable of sinning on our own. You know, David writes in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You see, David, who by all accounts was a great man of the Lord, who did many good things for the nation in Israel, was a wretched, broken sinner, who spent his last few years in solitude and shame over the sinful acts he had committed. Yet in the midst of this, as we've wrestled with our sin and who we are and what it is that we've done, we recognize there is hope. We recognize that there is redemption. That just as we've seen throughout the scriptures, as we've seen throughout the study of the text today, that in the middle of the darkness, there is life. There is a light upon the hill. There is hope to be found. That we are sinners who are in need of a Savior. But my, what a wonderful Savior we have. You see, 1 John 4.10 puts it like this. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he would choose to love us in the midst of our wretchedness and despair. 
that his display of love wasn't merely to just say thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, guys. But his display of love was to send his son Jesus to be the propitiation of our sins. That's a New Testament word for atonement. It is directly referring to the exchange of sin with Christ. That God sent Jesus to die upon the cross and Jesus on the cross took our sin and shame and imputed or gave us his righteousness. And when he died and rose again, he rose again bearing the weight of our sin and shame but leaving the sin crucified and dead in the grave. That what he took up when he rose again was that same righteousness that we share with him. And as we look at this, as we wrestle with what we are to do with our sin, what I need you to hear, what I pray that you have heard, is that there is a path for forgiveness for each and every one of us. Specifically, I want to draw your attention to the last part of Leviticus chapter 12. You see, it says in verse 8, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. You see, what we see displayed there can be looked at as just a footnote and going, that's nice, that's another thing they can do. But what God was doing was that he was making a way for those who are physically poor to make an offering and to become right with him. That the lowest of the low could make this offering because these were readily available to the people of Israel. And God is saying that there are no barriers between you and I. There is nothing that can keep you from receiving the free gift of grace that I offer. That there is no sin too great. There is no mistake that is too deep. There is nowhere you can go that you cannot be saturated by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You see, what we see being displayed here, what we see displayed through the very character of God is that there is room at the foot of the cross for all. And that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, there is mercy and grace abounding for us at the foot of the cross. And so as we wrestle with this truth today, I want to invite you to Wrestle with your sin. I want to invite you to come to the foot of the cross. To be redeemed and restored by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. To recognize that he took our place so that we might have his place. And to rejoice and celebrate in the free gift of grace that God has provided for us. You see here in the next few minutes... I'll lead us in a time of prayer and our worship team will come back up to sing a song and to rejoice in how wonderful our Savior is. Yet the truth of the matter is, is that you cannot sing about how wonderful your Savior is, is if, if He is not your Savior. And the only way we can truly rejoice and sing this song with confidence and assurance is if we have been cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so here in the next few minutes, I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer that I'll begin with just silence 
for you and I individually to come to God with our sin, to humble ourselves before Him at the cross and to repent, to turn away, to seek forgiveness for the things that we've done. And then I'll close us in prayer. And in that prayer, that is time for you to cry out to God that you are a broken sinner in need of a Savior. And the Scriptures would make it very clear as we study them that there is one prayer that God will always answer with a resounding yes, and that is a prayer of salvation. That if you come to God humbling yourself, crying out for mercy and forgiveness, His answer is yes every single time. There is still power in the name of Jesus to save. And so that is available to you and to I today. And so here in this next few moments, we'll pray. We'll wrestle with the truth of the Scriptures. And then we'll together stand and sing, rejoicing at how wonderful our Savior is. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you in clear understanding of who we are before you. That on one hand, we are your precious creation. The ones that you created to know intimately. That you created so that we may live and walk with you for all eternity, rejoicing in your presence having a deep, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Yet on the other hand, we see our sin that has separated us from you. We're aware of our guilt, of the original sin that has stained humanity since the fall. But we're also aware of the fact that we have heaped sin and shame upon this. That though we are guilty, we have certainly contributed our portion to this. And Father, we desire for those two things, those two hands, those two thoughts to be reconciled. And Lord, you were good enough to send your son Jesus so that reconciliation would be made possible. You sent he who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That you paid for the debt of sin and shame that separated us from you, Lord, so that we could have that relationship. So that we could have an intimacy with you. Father, that you were not content to leave us in sin and shame, but you moved heaven and earth to send Jesus so that we could have life eternal with you. That we could have this life if we would repent and believe. 
So, Father, what I ask today is that we would repent, that we would confess our sin to you, Father, that we would cry out that we have been broken by our sin, the weight of burden and expectation, and that we desperately need your salvation. That we would believe that it is only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the, that propitiation that he provides, that we could have this life, Lord. And so we trust, we pray with confidence that you are listening, that you are working, and that you are moving. So Father, we pray that we would repent and believe. And that these next few minutes, as we rejoice and sing of how wonderful is our Savior, that this would perhaps be a scene of what heaven will look like. Of the saints gathered around the throne rejoicing in how wonderful their Savior is because He pursued them. Because He brought life. Because He restored them. Father, we often say, on earth as it is in heaven, may that be true in this time. May your will be done here. And may this look just like the rejoicing of the saints and the angels around the throne, Father. Lord, we pray these things in the strong, finished work of Christ. Amen.